We are heading to Acts. It should by now be starting to fall open a little bit in your Bibles, I think. Um, But we're up to Acts 9. And uh, just while you're navigating your way there, I'm just going to welcome the Holy Spirit uh, to help us this morning. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've been in our midst all morning, that you are right here with us and in us but particularly as we approach the word this morning, we do so recognising that it is through your enabling that you open that up to us. Uh, It is through you that um, we personally are able to hear uh, from the Father for what he has on his heart for us this morning. And so uh, we choose as an act of our will and with intention to open our ears and our hearts to you this morning, Lord Jesus, and that you would have your way in our midst. Amen. So we are going to read from verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is with the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised, and taking food, he was strengthened. 
This is undoubtedly one of the most radical and famous conversion stories in Acts and perhaps the whole of the New Testament. It is so famous that, in fact, the phrase a Damascus Road-like experience is used in modern vernacular, not just inside the church, but outside the church as well, to describe a sudden and dramatic experience. This moment is of such significance and importance that Luke records Saul and Paul as he became his conversion three times in Acts. Once in the third person, as we've read today, and twice as a recount of Paul sharing his testimony. The impact of Saul's conversion uh, cannot be disputed and was far-reaching. He wrote over 25% of the New Testament under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and outlined much of the theology and the doctrine that we build our lives upon today as followers of Christ some 2,000 years later. And as God's chosen instrument, as we've read, to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, the salvation, the conversion, and the surrender of Paul to the lordship of Jesus is actually the beginning of our story as Gentile believers. I have to confess that um, when faced with such a familiar story to preach on, I felt a little daunted This was the next chapter in the book that we were up to. And so in Saul's radical encounter, we could focus on the truth that there is no one beyond the reach and the mercy of God's grace. I think it's hard for us to perhaps find some modern or exact modern equivalent to Saul Perhaps some key Islamic militant leader, maybe even a new atheist like someone like Richard Dawkins. But as Adam pointed out um, in his reading through with us last week of Acts 8, Saul was ravaging the followers of Jesus. And that word ravaging meant to be tearing apart, mauling and killing like a wild animal. This was not some soft opposition. And it brings to mind, I think, for us, the barbaric practices that some of our brothers and sisters around the world still face at the hands of violent extremists. In Paul's own words, in his recount of his testimony in Acts 26, he describes his raging fury against what he believed to be the enemies of God, which led him to pursue followers of the way, even to foreign cities. And that is where we find him on the road to Damascus, a foreign city, with hatred and this crazed mission to persecute, tear down, and oppose anyone who confessed the name of Jesus. So, if you want proof that no one, no matter how antagonistic they may appear towards the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one is beyond his reach, then Paul is your man. In Paul's story, we could today focus on the necessary steps for salvation, a personal encounter with Jesus, although most of us here will have not had something quite so dramatic, the acceptance of our sinfulness and the need of a saviour, and the surrender to his lordship in repentance and humility. All of these are clearly seen in Paul's testimony. But today what I want to focus our attention on 
is what I want to call the suddenlies and the steadilies of following Jesus. The suddenlies and the steadilies of following Jesus. The book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, as it is also known, could be viewed as a book full of suddenly moments. There are miracles galore, there are dramatic moments, rescues off ships, busting out of jail. There are thousands and thousands being saved at a time. It's a book that I think for all of us, we would agree, stirs up a yearning for revival, to see, experience and encounter Jesus like they did, and that to hunger after the boldness with which they proclaimed the gospel. I certainly want suddenlies like that in my life. But what I want to also show you today is that the early church was not only marked by suddenly moments, but also by steadily moments. You see, steadily, the first disciples waited in the upper room as instructed by Jesus. And then suddenly, the Holy Spirit came in power, turning their lives and the lives of all in Jerusalem who witnessed it upside down. And then steadily, the new believers in the early church grew in maturity and in discipleship as they continually devoted themselves, as we read during communion, um, to the apostles' teaching, to praying, to breaking bread together, to sharing everything they had in common. And then suddenly thousands and thousands were added to their number in such a way that it made it hard for them to meet the needs of the poor and the widows. And so steadily they set up processes and added people to their team to help serve. And then suddenly persecution sprang up after a period of relative peace and the followers of Jesus were scattered. And steadily they continued to proclaim the gospel wherever they ended up. And suddenly one of the biggest perpetrators of persecution against them, encountered Jesus and was radically saved. There have definitely been times in my life where I wanted Jesus to show up suddenly in a situation or a circumstance like he did for Saul in my own life but also in the life of people that I love. After I recommitted my life to the Lord in my mid-twenties, There was a period of about four years where Justin was not yet a Christian. And I know that that is nothing compared to the amount of time that some of you have waited and are waiting to see your spouse encounter and surrender to Jesus. But there were many times in that four years where I would pray and I would bargain with God. Surely you just need to radically reveal yourself to Justin in a way that leaves him in no doubt that what I'm saying is true. Can't you do that, God? He just needs a Damascus Road experience. Now, Justin didn't have a Damascus Road experience, and his testimony is definitely his to share, but I have his permission to share a couple of my own experiences on the sidelines during this time of just desperately wanting to see God break through in a suddenly moment and getting us steadily instead. I was given this prophetic word um, when I went up to receive prayer. This would have been about three years before Justin surrendered his life to Jesus. And the picture that the person praying for me got was each of us walking on either side of a fence, a little bit 
apart. And that gradually, as we walked, Justin just got closer and closer to the fence line. And at one point, he simply chose to hop over. And the sense that the prayer had was that he would gradually and steadily see no reason to be on the opposite side of the fence. And that is really exactly what happened. He did start attending church with me when we had Beth, who was a baby, just to help me with the baby. But actually, the first thing that I knew of his conversion was a seemingly ordinary breakfast conversation one morning in the middle of the blur of early parenthood and sleep deprivation when he announced to me that in the shower the preceding week he had said yes to Jesus. And it was amazing. I mean, I managed only just not to choke on my tea. But this is the faithful, steady work of God's saving grace. But to be honest, it's not how I would have done it. There's something... (laughs) No. No comments from the front row. There's something seemingly so definitive about Saul's encounter that makes it seem easier somehow, maybe quicker, a bit less disappointing than the roller coaster of waiting for the steadilies of God. And that's most of the time what I would prefer. And I am not alone. I have to tell you that this week I had a very real, a revealing conversation with an unnamed worship pastor <coughs> who openly confessed that he would only ever want to drum if he could drum as well as Joel Cox, but without the years of practice. So really what he was actually asking for was a Damascus Road-style drumming experience the quick road to drumming success. We could lay hands on you later. But is a suddenly moment from God actually a suddenly in the sense that there's no previous preparation? We can't know for sure, but I think it's worth considering what was going on in the mind of Saul as he took that long walk to Damascus. It was 140 miles. It was likely to have taken him a full week on foot. So what was going through his mind? What did he make of those followers of Jesus who had faced suffering and peril with peace, unafraid and steadfast? What did he make of Stephen's wisdom and the evidence of God's presence in his life that made his face glow and made him look like an angel? What did he make of Stephen's last prayer in his last breath when he asked God to forgive his murderers? As Saul literally stood by, approving of his execution, holding coats. Is it possible that the growing fanaticism with which Saul pursued and persecuted the followers of Jesus actually betrayed a growing inner uneasiness? In the account of Saul's testimony that's recorded in Acts 26, which is Paul giving his testimony, there's this interesting addition in his account of what he heard Jesus say to him. So um, he, he reports in Acts 26 that he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I have to be honest, I needed to do a bit of research on this because what on earth does that mean? But if I unpack that for you, basically an iron goad was an instrument, usually a farming instrument, that was used to prod and spur along beasts of burden, things like oxen and horses, to keep them going in the direction that the farmer wanted them to go and to break them in. So in essence, Jesus is describing to Paul in this um, encounter on the road that he is breaking Saul in, prodding and pricking at him, and that Saul is trying to resist. And so to kick against the goad is actually an ancient proverb, and it means to offer vain and futile resistance. John Stott says this in his commentary on Acts. His, meaning Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, was a long, drawn-out process in which the hound of heaven had been pursuing him. The stiff-necked, self-righteous Pharisee bowed. The ox had been broken in. The sovereign, gradual, steady grace of Jesus first pricked Saul's mind with his goads, and then revealed himself, not to crush him, but to humble him, not to punish him, but to actually break through that raging fury enough to enable him to make a free response to Jesus. I think it can be easy when we read a book like Acts to read a chapter and think that we're reading something that's just covering a day or two. But Acts 9 alone covers a three-year period. It opens with Saul leaving Jerusalem to persecute and round up fugitive Christians and ends with Paul again leaving Jerusalem, this time a fugitive Christian himself. How incredible are the suddenly and steadily ways of God. We are, of course, going to read much more about Paul as we continue through Acts. He's, of course, a very key protagonist in the book of Acts. But I think that it is important to note for us, understanding that all of us have aspects of our life where we yearn for that suddenly moment. That whilst Paul had this seemingly suddenly moment much of his spiritual formation and recalibration, or to use Peter's phrasing, the allowing the process of his theology to catch up with his experience, that took time. And that started with three days without sight, food or drink, in which to ponder, to pray, and to wait. Scholars actually have a phrase for the period of time between Paul's conversion and his first missionary journeys and his first recorded letter, which they believe to be Galatians. They call it the tunnel period. And that rough timeline is 14 to 15 years that included three years staying in Damascus and Arabia around that area, 
and then at least 10 years back in Tarsus. And we read very little about him in that period of 14 or 15 years after his suddenly moment. Many scholars suppose that Paul, who was indeed a very passionate and intense man, and you can continue to see that through much of his writing, but that he needed time to have the edges rubbed off him a bit. And it seems fair to assume that it was the wisdom of God to give time to steady him so that he didn't simply go from one raging zeal to another. So although it appears that Saul was radically saved and then immediately burst onto the apostolic ministry circuit, this was just simply not the case. In his life, you see represented both the suddenlies and the steadilies of God. Paul continued to have many suddenly moments throughout the remainder of his life. But it is worth noting that there is no such thing as sudden growth and maturity as disciples of Jesus. That only comes from a slow, steady walk with God, or as Eugene Peterson calls it, a long obedience in the same direction. So before we leave this chapter of Acts, there is one further character who I think deserves a little bit of our attention and again highlights the suddenlies and the steadilies of following Jesus, and that's Ananias. It's been said that if the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen, then the church also owes Paul to the brotherliness of Ananias. Later in Acts 22, again, an account of Paul sharing his testimony, he describes Ananias as a devout man, a follower of Jesus, a Jew native to Damascus, who was well spoken of by all the Jews in the area. This is an upright and righteous man. He's steady in his faith and in his life. And suddenly, God breaks through into his day with a vision and an audible voice and says, get up and go and help the man who's come here to arrest you and who would actually really quite like to kill you. That's my paraphrase, obviously. Ananias had heard about Saul. His reputation absolutely preceded him. And it wasn't just that that made what God was asking him to do staggering. On top of Paul's murderous reputation, God tells Ananias that Saul's going to be the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And although Jesus had talked about the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, this would have still been a very radical thing for Jewish ears to hear, that the Gentiles were going to um, begin to be welcomed in. God's sudden request surely must have seemed absurd to Ananias, if not madness. This is the kind of rise and go suddenly that very few of us would covet. For me, my headspace would go something like this. Nope, I would definitely prefer a steadily here, God. I just need a little bit more time. Is there a seminar I can go to on praying for and reaching out to difficult people? Um, uh, no, I think Adam would be much better to go. He is way more diplomatic than me. I think it's too soon, God. Can we just take this a little bit more steadily? But Ananias, after a little clarification, immediately gets up and goes. 
What a man. What an incredible, humble obedience to a very unexpected and unwanted suddenly. And he doesn't just enter Judas's house on straight street, leading with fear and prejudice, preconceived ideas, aggression or anger. He doesn't get in there a couple of backhanded insults or a few kidney punches while Saul's blind and defenseless. The first words that Saul hears from Christian lips after his conversion are brother Saul. I know that the scales fell away from... Saul's eyes through prayer, but I wonder if maybe they were first loosened by humble, overwhelming tears as he was undone by such undeserved grace. Ananias, whose name, by the way, means Yahweh has been gracious, met Saul with supernatural kindness. And the amazing thing is we don't really hear of Ananias again except in Paul's own recount a bit later in Acts. He was a one-hit wonder, so to speak, but what a hit. The effects of his obedience in this suddenly moment are immeasurable and eternal. So what does this mean for us this morning? I wonder if there are areas of your life where you were hoping for a suddenly and instead seemed to be getting a steadily. Or moments where you've received a suddenly and you would much prefer a steadily. The reality for each one of us is just like the early church. Our life as followers of Jesus will be marked by both the suddenlies and the steadilies of God. And both require our obedience our trust, and our humility. And so I believe that the fresh invitation for us today is to indeed trust in and to make room for God's steadilies. To examine our hearts again this morning for areas where we're needing to yield and surrender to the one who knows it all. Or maybe we're needing to trust and yield that he would prepare us for suddenly. As I invite uh, Adam and uh, Brendan back up this morning, I actually just want to finish with some words from Paul himself. I hope they strike you in a fresh way like they did me as I've sat with his story this week. Just a reminder of the suddenlies and the steadilies of God. And this is found in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was now through the church 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And would you receive this next part as a prayer over your lives this morning? For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You this morning may feel that it, the prompting of the Holy Spirit to respond and receive prayer, perhaps into an area of your life where you are struggling with either a suddenly or a steadily. Again, I want to remind you this morning that nothing is too hard for God. We find in the account of Paul such a witness to the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus to steadily draw us, to meet us, but also the hope that there is such a thing as suddenly breakthroughs. And so as Adam and uh, Brendan lead us this morning, perhaps in one final worship song, I want to invite the worship, um, the worship team. Sorry, the we have the worship team, the prayer teams, um, up this morning. And I, don't leave without receiving prayer this morning. If it's something that you're wrestling through, there is nothing better than to have someone stand with you in prayer. That was what I was doing that day when I got that word um, about Justin's salvation, wrestling through what I wanted to be a suddenly but instead was a steadily. God met me in that place, not with an immediate answer, but with something that was able to really anchor my faith and my hope in Him. He can do the same thing for you this morning. So I thank you. I'm just grateful that we're family together. I trust that uh, you have a blessed week. Uh, look forward to gathering together 
Sunday.